Welcome to America now. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. We've learned a lot over the last 24 hours. Not, I think, what many would have assumed we would learn over the course of about a day. But we've seen that media will run with stories that are completely false, that uh, they will rely on unnamed sources when naming sources would seem to be completely legitimate and, in fact, a much better practice than giving anonymity to everybody giving them information. They'll run with stories that are favorable to a political narrative that they like, that they've been pushing in the past, and then they will whimper out the corrections later on when no one's paying attention and it just doesn't matter. Um, We've also learned that the Comey firing was not nearly as momentous as they said it was. And we've seen that the Democrats, and and this is my ultimate takeaway from all this Russia-Trump collusion stuff, the Democrats are rooting for national failure. They are rooting for a major political schism, for uh, a catastrophe on the, in the political realm. Uh, Buck Sexton here with you all now, of course, 844-900-2825 if you want to call in on the lines. Let me talk to you a bit about what I mean here. Because I, I know that m- most of the people that I've been reading today, and I- I've tried to stay out of the, the fray. Usually I like to roll up my sleeves and get into it. Uh, but I, I've been watching this all play out because there's such a focus on individual accusations. And, and I'll go over them, right? Uh, Comey asked for resources uh, before he was fired. No, that's not true. Uh, the acting uh, or the, the deputy attorney general who was just recently confirmed, Rosenstein, he said he would quit if Trump didn't stop talking about the letter. No, that's not true. Uh, The initial implication from the White House that Trump fired him because of that letter and it wasn't because he was just going to fire him. Well, no, that's not true. So, yeah, of course, part of my job here, uh, part of my uh, my special and sacred duty to all of you who do me the honor and uh, the privilege of, of hanging out with me here in the Freedom Hunt is to make sure that not only we have a worthwhile conversation and an analysis of everything going on, but that you, I bring you all the stuff that happened today that matters in one way or another to us. So I'll do that. But I just want to go back to this point about Democrats rooting for national failure here, because this is not what the focus is on right now. There's so much on the tribal nature of our politics now. Oh, we're so divided. And people will say things without a trace of without a trace of irony or, or any uh, historical perspective, apparently. You know, they'll say, we've never been more divided as a country. Well, 
there was a civil war and we've been more divided as a country. But the the hyperbole yesterday was almost a necessity for some because if they want to get attention, if they want to be thought of as a thought leader in the midst of this, quote, constitutional crisis, that is not in the least an actual constitutional crisis. But you've got to come up with the most interesting, uh, bombastic, over-the-top, inflammatory way of saying that the Comey firing is the death of democracy. You know, democracy dies in do- democracy dies in darkness. Slash, or when James Comey is fired as FBI director. That that's what you were supposed to take away from yesterday. But there's a much uh, more important lesson, I think, for all of us, and. Uh, or maybe not even lesson, let's just call it a takeaway, that the the Democrats here are rooting for national failure and that they keep talking about how dangerous Russia is for us, for our allies, for our institutions, but specifically they, and when I mean they, I, I, I can play you some of the clips, you know who I'm talking about, all prominent Democrats and major uh, major media personalities, you know, news folks, um, they will say that Russia undermined our election, that Russia hacked the election, and we're all operating on, not us, but we're supposed to be operating under this conclusion that there was collusion, there was illegal collusion with the Trump campaign and the Kremlin, Vladimir Putin, uh, shirtless, maybe playing hockey, standing off the side like, we will get the Podesta's emails, and uh, we will we will share them with uh, the public, and then the public in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and uh, Michigan will vote for Trump. Um, nope, that's not what happened. But that's I know that's a little silly sounding intentionally, of course, but that's about as serious as the real analysis that goes into the collusion conspiracy theory has been so far usually conspiracy theories have at least some data points that can be relied on here there are uh, no evidentiary points at least there, there's no evidence as you know and I, everyone everyone's yelling all everyone on the right's yelling oh there's no evidence which is true and it's important but you already know that if you're listening to the show you know that so i don't want to spend too much time on that but understand or keep in mind that the democrats are talking about how dangerous Russia is for our institutions and Russia undermines our democracy and all this. And yet they also are suggesting or outright saying that the president of the United States is a traitor. And if you were to get most Democrats that hold that uh, thought, which is a lot of them, it certainly is the media and it's the, the top of the Democrat Party. Um, they either pretend to believe it or they do believe it. It's tough to tell which is which. But if you ask them, which outcome would you prefer? Uh, This is a profound question. No one ever asks them this, but they should. Which outcome, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, uh, you know, anchors at CNN, anchors at MSNBC, you know, go go down the the New York Times editorial board, the Washington Post uh, political staff, which outcome? As an American, would you prefer that you have been wrong all along, that you have been smearing this president, that you have been 
uh, actively colluding with each other in the media to concoct narratives to destroy his reputation, to stop his agenda, which is, whether they believe it or not, supposed to make life a little easier, a little better, or at least perhaps a little less bad at the hands of the government. Uh, would you rather that be the case or so that that's that's option a that's door number one you're asking our the the democrat establishment this question right so that's the first one or the second choice that the president of the united states in some scheme that i still have a hard time coming up with a a creative way to make this plausible feasible um, but that the president of the united states met with or or had his top you know consigliere uh, meet with russian intelligence and actively assisted them provided what you would consider in the context of say a, a terrorism investigation material support um, or engaged in an international conspiracy with russian intelligence to sway an election regardless of whether it was effective right that's we should keep that in mind here. I've already to- told you where I stand on that. I, I, to say I don't think it's it was ineffective is not strong enough. I, I'm almost certain it wasn't, but it could still be, uh, you know, you know, attempted bank robbery is still is still bad, right? I mean, you know, if if you're uh, if you attempt to uh, take active steps, clearly, willingly, knowingly to subvert the election, if you're a presidential candidate. And you're working with Russian intelligence. I'm still not even clear on what the criminal charge would be. But that's not I'm getting further down the rabbit hole than I even mean to. Right. On the one hand, you have the whole media has been wrong. Trump did nothing wrong. He's innocent. And they've been running with this and wasting the American people's time, really wasting our time and feeding their worst political prejudices. That's option A or option B. The president is a traitor. Which do you think most Democrats would choose at this point? Which do you think the uh, Democrats with the biggest platforms in the media, the Democrats who represent the most important states, the Democrats who have the greatest audience, funding, sway, any number of methods that we could use to calculate their influence? Do you think they go with option A or option B? At the end of all of this, would they rather? And of course, I think the, the, the reality will be option C, which is that they're not proven right or wrong and they'll just in their minds at least, and, and they'll just continue with this and we'll never stop hearing about it. But, you know, Trump didn't betray his country. Even if the investigation shows that, they're going to say, well, there needs to be more investigation. There needs to be more study. You know, there needs to be more of a, a, a deeper look into this. But what does it tell us that, and I know I'm making an assumption here, but I think it's a very clear one. It's an obvious one. What does it tell us that our fellow Americans who are left of center, so many of them would rather believe, uh, would rather believe that the president, the sitting president of the United States is a traitor than that they were wrong. That's what bothers me. And I, I haven't even talked to you about the Comey. I've got all, we'll get into all the Comey updates. I promise you by, by the end of this hour, you'll know everything you need to know about Comey and then some, and then the back and forth with, with Rosenstein and uh, with the acting uh, FBI director uh, and all of it. Okay, so we'll we'll get into that. But in the meantime, I think it's you know, McCabe. He was testifying today. I, I read the testimony, watched uh, watched as much of it as I could, but I read all of it. Um, 
I, I prefer to read the transcripts of these things oftentimes just because, and then I can go back if I really want to see the exchange anyway. This is a fundamental question, though. Or this, this is very important for us to consider. What does it mean about us as a country right now when a large portion of our fellow Americans would, would prefer that the president is a traitor than that they were wrong? This is very damaging. Forget about the Russians and their ability to undermine our institutions and, and their intent to push our policies in one direction or another. When it is our fellow Americans who truly believe and not just believe, but would prefer to believe the president is a traitor than that they have been misled on this issue and they are wrong. That's honestly uh, deeply, uh, deeply disconcerting to me. Um, That is, I I don't know how we come back together after this. I I don't know how this goes away. Um, If they are right, by the way, where would we go as a nation? Think about that. They're all acting like the end end goal here uh, is going to be, or the end state is Trump is proven a traitor. What does that look like for the country? I mean, they they're so childish in their analysis of this that it's all about being right, being right. Me, 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 my tribe, my side, we win. And there's there's really no thought about how do they realize how momentous and and destructive and undermining it would be for the United States if we had somebody who. And again, I I know some of you are like, Buck, why are you even using the the T word. Why are you even talking about treason or traitor, either one? Uh, Because that's what they're saying. I was reading to you and playing clips yesterday for you, people with sway, people with clout that are listened to by other Democrats. This is the claim that's being made. And they want to pretend that somehow our side is too rough around the edges You know, we're the fascists, we're the authoritarians, we're creating the constitutional crisis. They, meanwhile, have manufactured a narrative of a president as traitor with no supporting evidence whatsoever. And they are so dedicated to it that they won't they won't walk back and they won't give it up. Forget about Russia undermining the integrity of our elections. The Democrats are enmeshed right now in a deeply destructive position for the entire country. And it hurts all of us. It hurts them. It hurts Republicans. It hurts all of us. So that's what I take. Yeah, the Comey thing, we a lot of stuff is not true. Some of it is true. We, and, and I'll get into the verifications and all of that in a second here. But I, I am appalled. I really am. You know, um... 844-900-2825 on the phone lines. Uh, what do you think? I mean, is it too much to say that a, a lot of Democrats are rooting for national failure, are rooting for a political catastrophe to happen? Because that's what a president tried for treason would be. Um, anyway, we'll go into a break here, team. We'll be back, and we've got a lot more to talk about on the show. Uh, I, I can't even get into the topics right now because I have to go to break, but I'll, I'll tell you on the other side, so stay with me. I remember when I was in uh, Catholic school growing up here in, in New York City, we had uh, chapel every morning. And there were some some teachers we had that, you know, they did their best. But there were a couple, and there was one uh, named William Ryan. 
and uh, unfortunately he passed away some years ago. Um, but he would he would capture the attention of you know third, fourth, fifth, sixth graders. Uh, like it, it was, you know, this is before everybody would get so obsessed with Harry Potter. I mean, he told stories that could engross you in that kind of a way. He was, and they always had a a, a Christian moral and and a, and a Catholic, uh, usually Catholic backstory or Catholic tie-in. Um, and I remember him telling once uh, about it, and I, I may mistake some of the details because when he told this, I was. T- 12? No, 10. I might have been 10 years old. But I still remember. So that should tell you something. I think just, you know, my memory is not that good. Uh, but Mr. Ryan's stories uh, stayed with us to say he also, he read the Lord of the Rings trilogy to the class. Just he would sit and read to us um, in our off hours. And this was, uh, he read The Hobbit to us. Anyway, he was, he was a fantastic, he was one of those educators that I'm sure many of you have had or, and, and your, your children might even have them now. Um, who leave a tremendous imprint on you for the rest of your life. Uh, they change the way you think about things. They inspire you to want to read, to learn, to pursue different uh, intellectual paths. Uh, yeah, and, and it can happen at a very young age. And, and, uh, but I remember he told me this story, or told all of us this story in the chapel in front of, in front of a, a portion of the school about, I think it was Thomas Aquinas, and how uh, he had... At one point, uh, a couple of uh, friars went and and they grabbed him and and they said to to Thomas Aquinas, uh, "Look, there are, there are pigs flying about in the sky." Now, this story I'm sure is apocryphal, but whatever. I'm sure it's it's probably not. You know, this isn't what happened in ironclad history. But uh, the friars grabbed Thomas. They said, "Look out the window. There are pigs flying in the sky," and. Thomas, Thomas Aquinas, gets up and runs to the window, and they all start laughing at him, of course. And they thought that the friars thought this was so funny. Um, and when they were laughing, he just looked at them and he said, You know, I would rather believe that pigs could fly than my brothers would tell a lie. And that stuck with me today when we saw all of this about, and I'm, this is not, oh, everything, I, you know, I'm not saying Trump is a saint, I'm not, but we are in the completely opposite end of the spectrum now, that much of the country, forget about believing whether pigs could fly, much of the country is more emotionally and psychologically comfortable, is happier, is, uh, is much more content in their day-to-day Believing that the president of the United States is a traitor, is a traitor. Not that the president of the United States is a flawed man. And, you know, look, we've had Clinton and Bush made mistakes. And, you know, I I get, although not of the same kind of moral level, but, you know, everyone makes mistakes. But they they would they would rather go to sleep at night thinking about how it's just a matter of time before uh, it looks like our president is shown to be... um, it's shown to be a betrayer of the American people. You know, I think I think in Dante's Inferno, those who betray are, are in the final circle of hell with Judas, and for understandable reasons. Um, that's a really scary thought to me. Not that I think any of that is true or that Trump did any of the things they think happened, but that they would rather that be true than the alternative. Um, they certainly don't take the Aquinas approach. All right, we'll be right back, team. Stay with me. 
welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. Look, he's a showboat. He's a grandstander. The FBI has been in turmoil. You know that. I know that. Everybody knows that. You take a look at the FBI a year ago. It was in virtual turmoil less than a year ago. It hasn't recovered from that. So uh, that's that's the president of the United States calling uh, the FBI, former FBI director James Comey, a showboat. Let, let, let's go through some of the debunked stories, accusations, allegations, uh, stuff that was out there from yesterday. Uh, for example, um, it was said that the uh, that the new deputy attorney general, uh, Rosenstein, would resign was threatening to resign if the president kept mentioning the letter that was the justification for that was initially cited as a justification for firing uh for firing the fbi director um that was not true comes out today uh another thing on the whether things are true or not um the Story that uh, Comey had asked for additional funds for the Russia investigation right before he was fired. That was not true. Um, the I'm trying to think of what what are some of the other ones that I uh, that that we were told initially that turned out not to be the case. Um, but there are a number of them, right? That the the threat to the request for money, the threat to resign. Um, uh, some of the other ones will will come to me as we're moving through this because there's also interesting new stuff that we should add on to this. Um, but one thing that I wanted to note is that the president here in, a, in an interview with Lester Holt uh, on NBC is saying that uh, he was always going to fire Comey. That's what we that's what we've been told as of today in this interview. 50 I was going to fire Comey. My decision. It was not. You had made the decision before they came. Uh, I, I was going to fire Comey. Uh, I, there's no good time to do it, by the way. Uh, they they were around. Accepted, accepted their recommendation. Yeah, well, they so also. already made the decision. I, oh, I was going to fire regardless of recommendation. So they, he made a recommendation. He's highly respected. Very good guy. Very smart guy. Uh, the Democrats like him. The Republicans like him. Uh, he made a recommendation. But regardless of recommendation, I was going to fire so he was going to fire no matter what. So the, I, I, this is good. I, I'm glad that the president's coming out and saying this because we shouldn't be left with any confusion over this. Um, the the initial response that we got from the White House yesterday was not uh, it was not coordinated. I think we could say that um, you had uh, Deputy Press Secretary Sanders doing her uh, Huckabee Sanders doing her uh, very best to, to deal with all of this. Um, we'll, we'll get to her in a second, but there's, there's one, more in, one more important point from that Lester Holt-Trump interview um, about whether or not James Comey, because remember, this was written in a letter. I read the letter to you, I guess it was yesterday, that Trump sent Comey with uh, somebody who has been Trump's bodyguard for a long time, uh, took over in, a, in, a, in an envelope to the FBI uh, headquarters, um, but the notion of whether or not Trump is under investigation, 
right? Trump said in that letter, you told me three times I was not under investigation. Now everyone today is saying, well, is that even appropriate? Should the president be doing that? Here's what POTUS, which if you're in D.C. and you want to sound like the cool kids, you call the president of the United States POTUS. Um, yeah. Or, or you could just call him President Trump, which is probably a better way to go. Uh, but here's what POTUS had to say about that himself. You're right. I greatly appreciate you informing me on three separate occasions that I am not under investigation. Why did you put that in there? Because he told me that. I mean, he told me he that. He told you you weren't under investigation yeah, with re- and I, regard I've to heard the Russian that, investigation? I've heard that from others. I think Was it he, in a phone call? Did you meet face-to-face? Uh, I had a dinner with him. He wanted to have dinner because he wanted to stay on. We had a very nice dinner he, at the White he House asked very for the early on. A dinner was arranged. I think he asked for the dinner. And he wanted to stay on as the FBI head. And I said... I'll, you know, consider. We'll see what happens. But uh, we had a very nice dinner. And at that time, he told me, you are not under investigation, that which was, I knew anyway. That was one meeting. What was the, what First were the of all, two? when you're under investigation, you're giving all sorts of documents and everything. I knew I wasn't under. And I heard it was stated at the committee, at some committee level, that I wasn't. Number one. So that didn't come directly then, from Then during him. the phone call, he said it. And then during right. another phone call, he said it. So who, he said who? it once at dinner. And then he said it twice during phone calls. So th- there's a lot of cleaning up what was said yesterday about how they came to the decision. And I-, I think it's fair to say the White House did not have a unified message on this one. But it doesn't really matter because the president's allowed to fire the FBI director. There's plenty of cause for him to fire the FBI director. And he fired the FBI director. So we can all just get, uh, well, the other side's not going to get past it. But we can. We don't have to uh, wallow in this all of us at least, because that's what the left tends to like to do with it, of course. Um, But there's some other interesting things that came out today with the testimony. So that was from Trump's interview saying, look, I did it. Comey said I wasn't under investigation, but I asked him. And also this was all my decision. I'm 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 the decider. I think I don't know if that has been adopted as a real word. It should be. It was a, this was a, a Bushism. This was what Bush said back in the day that he was the, the, the decider. Um, and, Hey, it's a great term, actually. Decision maker is very clumsy. Decider is great. Now I could also sit here and say, why is it Arantai instead of Amantai? Amantai makes so much more sense. Think about it, people. Stay with me on that one. Think about that. Uh, so back to the FBI, the acting uh, FBI director here, McCabe. Uh, so he's he's the guy who had the most interesting additions to the Trump, Russia, Comey, I don't even know what we call all this now. This thing that they want to give it a, like a Watergate type, but they, they haven't. It, Russia gate doesn't sound, uh, you know, that that's not scary enough or that that doesn't cover enough. So I don't know what we don't have a good term for this yet. The we can't even describe the investigation very well. Right. It's the ongoing counterintelligence investigation to whether Trump associates colluded with Russia in a possible attempt to hack some emails in order to subvert the U.S. election process and surveillance of Trump associates that may have occurred as a result of that and the possible leaking of information that may, in fact, even have been classified about those Trump. Yeah, it's a lot, right? It's not not a simple thing to talk about. There's no quick way to just be like, yeah, you know, the thing. You know, the thing that he's talking about, the thing that he's, the thing he's talking about, the, the, the thing, you know, uh, the, the investigation. Uh, we, we can just call it the investigation, I guess, for now. Um, but Acting Director McCabe, I, I know I'm jumping around a bit here, but Acting Director McCabe, here is 
some uh, some some very interesting revelations from this individual in the aftermath of yesterday. Remember, yesterday it was this is a constitutional crisis. Uh, this is unconscionable for the. I'm not saying everyone was saying this, but this was a dominant narrative. I mean, if you turned on if you turned on CNN last night, it was it was like a a dirty bomb had gone off in like a major U.S. city. I mean, they they were completely freaked out about this. Um, but now we get a little more context today and a little more uh, accuracy. I, I think I said yesterday on this show, I certainly said it this morning on, uh, I was on Fox Business with Maria Bartiromo, and they asked me about this, and I said, look, this isn't even a good way. I think I said this this morning. I've been saying it a lot. I can't remember when I say things because I talk a lot. Uh, it's not even a good, it's not even a means of, oh, no, I did say this because of, yeah. It's not even a good way to shut down the investigation. It doesn't even work. The conspiracy is so ineffective that no person would do it, meaning that Trump firing Comey doesn't save him if he, in fact, colluded with Russia. But, oh, by the way, he didn't collude with Russia, and this whole thing is just a big dog and pony show to keep us all distracted and keep the Democrats you know, on something that's uniting them in opposition. Um, anyway, McCabe, FBI, acting FBI uh, director on the issue of resources for the continued investigation. Here's what he had to say. Understanding who at the Department of Justice is in charge of the investigation. Uh, the Deputy Attorney General, who serves as Acting Attorney General for uh, that investigation, he is in charge. And have you had conversations with him about the investigation since I you've have. been in this role? Yes, ma'am. You mentioned this that uh, De- Director Comey asked uh, Rosenstein for additional resources, and um, I understand that you're saying that you don't believe that you need any additional resources for the Russia investigation, ma'am. I think we are adequately resourced. They have the resources. He also promised that if anyone uh, tried to pressure them, he would go public with it. His wife is a Democrat. I'm going to guess that uh, who's running for office, uh, a public Democrat. Um, I'm going to guess that uh, he's a Democrat, too. Although I know we are told to think that senior law enforcement officials do not have a political uh, proclivity. But, yeah. We should probably stop pretending that that it's sort of like when we all sit around and say the Supreme Court is is above politics. But then there's all these fierce political battles over who sits on the Supreme Court. Top levels of any agency, particularly the FBI, inherently, no matter what we want to tell ourselves so we feel safe and warm at night, uh, there are there's uh, politics going on at the top of the FBI. But anyway, but that doesn't mean that you can, you know, you can be a Democrat or a Republican and adhere to the law and be fair minded in your application of it. I don't think that happened very much during the Obama administration, but there you have it. Um, he said that no, that, that they have adequate resources. So the, a big talking point from yesterday was this is going to scuttle the investigation uh, into Trump and that, and that's and Trump and Russia. And that's why this is so terrible. Uh, McCabe comes out today and says he will inform the public of any efforts to stymie the investigation. He also said uh, that firing Comey didn't stop the investigation, wouldn't stop the investigation, and there's no need for a special prosecutor. I mean, he's just going down the list. All, All of the things that we were told yesterday about why this is so terrible why we should all be so scared this is so momentous oh my gosh i can't believe this happened you know trump is trump is hitler what's what's going on here oh no uh, all of that in terms of on on a fact 
issue-by-issue basis was just swatted away today by the acting FBI director. And they have the resources. The investigation will not stop. If anyone tries to stop it, he will go public. If anyone tries to slow him down. So now are we to believe that everybody in the FBI who's a part of this investigation is just going to be silenced because they're also afraid of Trump, that this guy McCabe uh, is going to be in such fear of of the president that he wouldn't go public with it. I mean, but this also, by the way, raises for me the the issue of we would know if there was collusion because somebody would have gone public with it already. I I don't believe that this could have been good. Think about all the leaks during the uh, the Hillary email investigation that was going on. And, you know, there's no way that anybody put yourself in the shoes of being an FBI, an FBI um, investigator, FBI agent involved in this um if you saw whatever and i don't whatever the evidence is where we all assume that it must be classified because you know sally yates said that she can't answer because it's classified the evidence doesn't necessarily it might not be classified we don't know it could be an unclassified document that someone just mailed into the fbi headquarters everybody we don't know which is also why i found that yates situation very very dodgy the whole thing was uh she was dodging um but anyway because we don't know it's it's possible at least theoretically possible that there's information that's completely unclassified that would answer this one way or the other or at least would answer it that if there was collusion it could be unclassified um if it was out there though somebody would say something right someone in the fbi would sit down with a reporter and be like look like i don't know when it's going to come out but it's going to come out you don't think the washington post would run with that are you kidding me They'd be popping champagne corks left and right. As I said before, they want to they want to find out that the president is a traitor. That is their preferred outcome, which is uh, wow level shocking and troubling. Very troubling for all. It should be very troubling for all of us. Um, But so McCabe was just swatting down all this stuff. And what you see from yesterday, um, what you see from yesterday is the media goes with it when they can. And if they know if they're being a little reckless and their judgment is clearly impaired uh, by their political proclivities, by their their partisanship, it doesn't matter because as long as they can say, well, we had an anonymous source tell us this, so we're going to go with it. Uh, they think that's journalism. Well, when you have enough anonymous sources tell you stuff that's not true, and then you have to either retract it or it's proven to have been false, people lose faith in your journalistic integrity um but there, anyway, there's, there's one more point from mccabe that that's very important and it has to do with hillary clinton and the truth of the hillary investigation but to hear it you're gonna have to stay with me through this break i'll be right back you know who i think had a really good understanding of our current political moment or at least how the democrats are acting Alfred the Butler from the Batman movies. Some men aren't looking for anything logical, like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn. I think that's where Democrats are right now. On uh, <laughs> on, on the Trump treason investigation. They just want to watch the whole thing burn down. Okay, so uh, I said that I would tell you about Hillary, and I cannot... I cannot tell a lie about Hillary. 
but first, there was another contradiction from yesterday to today that McCabe and people are pointing to this. But this one is this is a judgment call. This isn't a factual contradiction. The, the, the problem the Trump White House had was initially saying the letter that Rosenstein wrote was why Comey was fired when, no, that was a that was justifying the decision that Trump, as he said, had already made. So that was a that was a little bit of a mess up. OK, um, but the Comey losing the confidence of the rank and file in the FBI or not, that's a judgment call, right? That was initially what Trump said. I, I don't know. Or maybe uh, Huckabee Sanders said it. I don't know if it's true or false. Uh, FBI is huge. Tens of thousands of people work for the FBI. Um, I think I think that's right. Uh, so, you know, this is not something that we need to uh, spend too much time on. But today, the uh, acting FBI director said that they're that the Comey was well liked. Um, Comey was re- res- respected by the rank and file. Okay, yeah, thirty five thousand uh, FBI agents, according to uh, Cora. Um, so, which is a site where people ask questions, just popping that up there real quick. Um, all right. Or 35,000 people work for the FBI side, whatever. That's not all what you would think of as FBI agents on Hillary. Here's what McCabe said as well. So McCabe said that Comey still had the confidence of the rank and file in the FBI. Fine. That's different from yesterday's story, but okay. He also said that there were a lot of people inside the FBI who were very unhappy about the decision not to indict Hillary, which we were hearing a little bit of that here and there. But let's think about, let's let that one sink in for a second. Comey acted like this was an open and shut. Come on. No, no reasonable prosecutor would bring a case. Uh, Well, apparently a whole bunch, according to McCabe today in testimony, a whole bunch of reasonable FBI agents thought that a case should have been brought. So we get back into the what's going on with this Comey guy? Um, Not really. He's not what he seems to be sometimes. I think that's fair to say. Uh, Also, um, he is very tall. 844-900-2825. We're going to have our friend Sean Davis from The Federalist joining up here in just a few minutes. We're also going to be talking about the opioid epidemic later in the show and a speech uh, by Betsy DeVos. That and more. Buck Sexton with America Now. We are sold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, welcome back, Team Buck. We've got our friend Sean Davis on the line. He is co-founder of The Federalist. You can read his latest work at thefederalist.com. Sean, great to have you. Always good to be here. Thank you for having me. So a lot of stuff happening, Sean. What should we make of these things that are going on in the news right now with Comey and the FBI and more? Oh, my. Yeah, I, I'm going to go against the grain of the uh, media narrative here and uh, go with it just being a big pile of nothing. I think people are making a bigger deal out of this than it is as well. To At, at a level where it's crowding out all other news stories. There's there's nothing else really that we can talk about other than the, the Comey firing. And it's just not that in, it's completely everyone agrees it's completely legal. Everyone agrees there was no way Trump could ever do it without upsetting Democrats anyway. 
And now we've all been told that it didn't change the investigation, which I knew before, because how could it change the investigation? So what's all the what's all the fuss, my friend? Well, it reminds me of what happened, and I think it was in 2007 when uh, Bush's Attorney General, Alberto Gonzalez, uh, fired a bunch of U.S. attorneys who worked for the Attorney General and for the President. They worked entirely at his pleasure. And the media and Senate Democrats and House Democrats made you think that this was Watergate 2.0, that it's the worst thing that ever happened in the American public. It was a gross abuse of power, when in reality it was... Uh, boss firing a bunch of people who needed to go so he could bring in fresh blood. Uh, It was a whole bunch of nothing. It was a completely manufactured outrage. And that's what we're seeing right now. The media has this silly Russia narrative. They're convinced that uh, Trump is this, you know, a Manchurian candidate from the Kremlin with a a brain chip in his head implanted by Putin himself. And so every single thing that happens every day has to be used to reinforce that. So, you know, a complete hack of an FBI director who's been making a mess of everything and enemies of everyone on either side of the aisle for the last nine months gets fired. Uh, well, it can't just be house cleaning. It can't be that this guy was a hack who needed to go. No, it all has to be in service of the Russian narrative. So that, to me, explains the complete hysterical freakout meltdown from the media that we're watching right now. I've started to think that there may be a greater self-awareness within the, the corridors of the elite Democrat media on this issue than than a lot of folks on on our side of the I'll give them credit for, but that maybe they just see this as it, it is effective and profitable, meaning that the the the, out, the outrage ometer is not only good for uh, business in the sense that it um, continues to perpetuates narratives that these outlets like the, the Russia one, of course, is the big one that these outlets have been running with for a while, but also it, it generates clicks. It gets eyeballs. So I, I think that this, you know, we're led to believe, Sean, that the the false story gets 30,000 retweets and the correction gets five retweets on Twitter because it's just a, you know, that's just the way that it is. But and it's an honest mistake. I, I think the, now they're leaning into it a little bit. They're, they're embracing that. J- just go with it. I've got an anonymous source that says that Comey asked for more funds uh, right before he got fired. Just go with it because it's good for business. Oh, I completely agree. I think all of this scratches multiple itches for the media and the Democratic activists with bylines who, who populate these outlets. Number one, you get all the uh, clicks and the money and the viewership from the outrage. And number two, you get to kind of push your own political ideological narrative that you would have pushed anyway. Um, And and we've just seen it in these last two days, you know, this breathless report from unnamed anonymous congressional sources that Comey had asked for more uh, resources from the deputy AG for the Russian investigation and was turned down. And the next day he was fired. So all anonymous sources. Um, don't even work in the building, wouldn't have been present at such a meeting if it ever happened. Um, and then we have multiple name sources immediately on the record at DOJ say, you know what, no, that never happened. Then you had this whole narrative about, oh, Rod Rosenstein, he had to threaten to resign because Trump was uh, so badly mangling his integrity. And, and then we find out, no, that didn't happen either. What happens in the media now with their narrative is basically uh, fire, aim, ready. They go out with whatever pushes the narrative, and then when it gets blown up, however long it takes, an hour, a minute, a day, they come back with, oh, yeah, yeah, oops, that was wrong, and it gets one retweet, it gets uh, one eyeball on the updated story, and that's it. But what's left is the impression that they wanted from their initial narrative. That has been the entire story since the moment Trump was elected. 
And, and I have to say, I, I think that it's kind of funny that the media gets so upset uh, whenever people talk about fake news or, or they talk about even even media bias, which has been a much more longstanding uh, issue and, and something that people have been talking about. Uh, they they have just doubled down. Everything that people were concerned with before the media was doing, they've doubled down with on Trump. So it's, it's kind of funny. On, on the one hand, they're saying Trump is attacking the media. This is unprecedented. It's an assault on you know a free press and the First Amendment and fascism and blah, blah, blah. Uh, but then they also, in response to what they perceive as this threat, act in worse ways with regard to the very sp- the exact criticisms that they're upset about. They act even more poorly as a result of it. Like they're, like they're being even more biased after being, well, you know, Trump attacks us all the time. Why is he doing this? Well, because, guys, this is how you get You're Trump. exactly right. Yeah, this is exactly, and it's how you get more Trump. Uh, I, I wrote after the election, um, shortly after that, I was worried the media like might get a clue and realize, hey, you know what? Our behavior, instead of making it harder uh, for Trump to win, actually made his win possible. Maybe we ratchet it back. Maybe we take a breath and sit out a few plays. I was worried that would happen uh, because, you know, as, as somebody who's in the media critic business, uh, I like it when they're outrageous and ridiculous because it makes my job so much easier. But thankfully, my concerns were misplaced. They did not get better or engage in any self-circumspection. They did not become more self-aware at all. They doubled down on all the nonsense they peddled throughout all the 2016 and then decided that, oh, no, that's not how we got Trump. We got Trump because we didn't do enough of what we were doing. So we're just going to you know, double down on it entirely and be as ridiculous as humanly possible. Do you think we're ever going to get definitive answers? I know there are some people that no matter what the end result of the investigations into Russia, Trump, conspiracy, collusion stuff, it, it'll never be enough for them. It doesn't matter uh, what is said or, or, or who says it. Uh, but do you think that for the rest of us that just really do want to have answers and be done with this, are, are we going to get those answers? Where do you think we fall on that spectrum? No, no, we're, ne- we're never going to get anything definitive. And the reason is that w- once you have spun a conspiracy theory and once you've engaged the conspiracy theorists, uh, any lack of evidence is just more proof of the conspiracy. So this Russia stuff, from my view, is the flip side of the Obama birtherism uh, coin. So you had him come out with his, uh, his long-form birth certificate, and all that did was whet the appetite of the conspiracy theorist. Oh, no, well, this just proves uh, that the whole thing was doctored, and he really was born in Kenya, and we knew it. This is birtherism all over again. There is absolutely nothing that anyone in government could say or do to convince a huge chunk of these people that Trump isn't a a robot devised by Vladimir Putin uh, in the halls of the Kremlin. It it will never, ever happen. They will never be content. I see CNN reporting today on a Chiron on their screen for their national news broadcast that President Trump uh, got two scoops of ice cream. Everyone else got one. That's that is treason. So, look, these people are just journalists. They're, they're, these journalists are like firefighters. Remember that they sense danger, and rather than running away from it, they run right into the fire. And thank goodness they got the scoop on the amount of scoops that Trump likes to have scooped in his ice cream. There we go. They're, they're, they're keeping it. They're keeping it real by making it fake. <laughs> there we go. That's what the journalists do. Uh, we're speaking to our friend Sean Davis of the Federalist. Everybody, you can check out his latest on thefederalist.com, where he is a co-founder. Sean, thanks for making the time. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. My pleasure. Thank you, Buck. Team, 844-900-2825. We're going to hit a quick break, and we'll be right back. 
We've got David in Arizona on the line on the iHeart app. What's up, David? Oh, hey, man. First off, I want to congratulate you on your new gig, man. It's about time, and it's so much more convenient to listen to you. And uh, and I know that as a rising star, this is a big step for you, and congratulations. Thank you very much, David. I appreciate that. Well, now, first, I want to say that, you know, we talk about all this morale in the FBI, and I have to tell you, American law enforcement for the last eight years has taken such a hammer uh, beating from Justice Department, and 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 every component of it have become politicized. And I have to tell you yesterday that uh, I have to believe that morale in every law enforcement agency, not at the top necessarily where the politics are played, but at the street level, have been greatly improved by that act. So you you agree with Comey getting fired? Absolutely. The guy was an incompetent political boob, and I tell you, it was almost. It was almost Soviet. And uh, last July, sitting there listening to his monologue uh, about where he com- he hit every single element of the crime. That every every rookie in the academy, I mean, every cadet knows what elements of the crime are. And Hillary fulfilled every single element. And yet, at the end, he adds a new element: uh, intentionality, a mental state that's not even a component. In fact, if she had been intentional, it would have been a completely different statute and a far greater crime. She was reckless and careless in her handling. That's a, a felony. But intentional intentionality would have been treason or, or some other crime. That's what nobody seems to understand. He he was talking about some other statute, but not the statute that she was charged with. Well, I think that the, that the FBI uh, acting director came out today, David, and said that members of the FBI rank and file uh, were frustrated that no charges were brought. That, that says a lot. It certainly does, but at the same time, you're hearing these, quote, insider voices saying that how they were caught, they're blindsided, quote, unquote. No one there could have been blindsided. It's a conscious person. And regardless, I'm just saying that I really hope that their morale improves and they uh, feel as if that the that, that some, some aspect of their reputation has been regained. But until we get a director we all trust and not this Democrat operative there they have acting, then, then we'll see what happens with their morale. But a nation, Trump has been the greatest boon to law enforcement morale I've ever seen in my lifetime. And I'm about to be 65, so I'm telling you that I've never seen it so low in the last year. And now he is really single-handedly bringing back the morale and the confidence of the of state and local officers. David in Arizona, great to have you, sir. Thanks for calling in. Um, so there was a story that... Uh, thought should get a lot more attention than did. I would like to also spend some of our time here together in the Freedom Hut talking about some policy stuff, too. And uh, because the well, it's it's an evolving issue. It keeps changing, especially when we're talking about health care and immigration. Those are the two that I have at the top of my oh, I'm sorry, three health care, immigration, taxes. But on health care specifically, this would have been on any other day. A pretty major story, I think. Aetna, a massive insurer, is just pulling out of Obamacare uh, by 2018. They they are just pulling up stakes. They're they're done trying to be in, in the individual market under uh, under the Obamacare uh, regime uh, under the law. And uh, let me just play this for you. One other thing I wanted to point out, last night Obamacare suffered another serious blow as Aetna announced its decision to pull out of the Nebraska and Delaware marketplaces, which ends their participation in exchanges completely. 
They've sustained hundreds of millions of dollars over the last several years and is projected to lose more than $200 million in 2017. The company attributes those losses to structural issues within the exchanges, quote, that have led to co-op failures and carrier exits and subsequent risk pool deterioration, end quote. Here's one of the problems that we must be aware of going forward when we talk about health care. Yes, Obamacare is failing. Yes, the exchanges are in many places a disaster. Um, they are a, a money pit. They're going to need more funding to stay solvent. They're going to need taxpayer bailouts, whether it's now or in a few years. And I, and I know that there's and this has to do with the risk corridors and, and people say, well, we're going to prevent that money from going in. Th- that's not going to work. You, you can't have a, an insurance you can't have insurance companies mandated to provide certain plans and then and people are told they have to buy a plan and there's no plan to buy. Right. There's something's something's got to give there that that's not sustainable. Um, but th- this is what I would caution many conservatives ab- about. And, and I think it's um, this is where the fight over health care is going to go, regardless of what the Trump administration does uh, going forward with the uh, American Health Care Act, as we're calling it. I do think it should have a cooler name, by the way. I mean, you know, not that anything is cooler than America, but you know what I'm saying. I just I'm not sure that it's um, I, I think it could have been something with a little more. I can't think of anything on the spot, but American Health Care Act is a little too a little too bland, given that Obamacare was supposed to be the great destructor of the economy, unconstitutional uh, ruining health care in this country, all of the things that we were told for years. And now it's kind of like, well, I mean, it's not really that bad. We're going to keep some parts of it. So um, on to. Oh, yeah. So th- this is the this is where the road. Uh, this is where the road diverges. And this is where the fork in the road will happen. Uh, conservatives would think, OK, Aetna's pulled out. This is clearly unsustainable. And so we will um, we have the political will in the operating room to come up with something better than what Obamacare is right now. All right. Um, And they're in the process of doing that. Right. The House passed that thing that wasn't great, but a little better than Obamacare. But really wasn't great. Now, the Senate's working on something, I guess. Well, when everyone's back in in D.C., Uh, Senate's working on something. We'll be working on something. And uh, looking at this. We can think to ourselves, the failure of Obamacare exchanges will mean that they will understand that there will have to be a free market and that, that essentially the, that the, the failure of Obamacare leads to a more free market based, conservative approved healthcare system. That, unfortunately, is not how it necessarily will go. And in fact, uh, given the mood of the country on healthcare and many of the discussions we're having, I think... Uh, that it could very well go in the other direction, which is, well, the healthcare system just needs more money. It just needs more taxpayer money put into it. We d- we just need more money um, and higher taxes to pay for it. That's uh, that's a, a dangerous pathway for us to go down, and I think there's a real possibility we will end up going down it. And in the meantime, this whole discussion is going to get nasty. So anyway, before I get into the nastiness of the discussion, see what I'm saying? It's just... The failure of the exchanges doesn't mean that conservatives get to fix them. The failure of the exchanges can also mean that they, that the the cry for single payer, uh, single payer gets louder and louder, and 
People may just be like, you know what? Let's let's try that. And uh, you may be shaking your head like that's terrible, but en- enough of your fellow Americans may go for it that that ends up happening. Then you got re- representative onto the nastiness of the discussion. The representative uh, Tom MacArthur uh, of New Jersey uh, was trying to speak at a town hall about the health problems of his special needs daughter uh, who died at age 11. He's trying to talk about this story. And this is the way that activists at his rally treat this man. Not all I say. If you want me to listen to you, I'm asking you to listen to me. Asking you to listen to me. When you're done, I'm going to continue. This is not a canned response. It's not a canned response. I want you to stop for a moment. Because if you think that this doesn't have an impact on how somebody sees things. They were nasty to him while he's trying to tell this story. They say, oh, we've, we've already heard this before. Isn't it so interesting? The left treats anyone who has suffered a tragedy as sacrosanct and, and, and untouchable for the purposes of debate as long as they're taking a leftist Democrat position. They, they give no such leeway, though, to people who disagree with them on the other side. So putting forth someone who has suffered a personal tragedy or has been the victim of something on, on any issue, never mind just health care, uh, is a a time-tested tactic for Democrats. But you'll notice that if a Republican, even if it's not a tactic, it's just someone who's trying to tell a story, but you would expect a, a basic human deference given the, the seriousness and, and the, the tragedy of what this congressman is discussing. And, and there, people are just uh, heckling him, you know, being being nasty to him. This is, you know, I don't mean to sound like uh, like, you know, a, a guy who's here on radio is trying to tell us that we all need to give each other big hugs and stuff. because That's not how I am. But things right now really have reached a level of of political psychosis on, on a whole bunch of issues. First and foremost, Russia, but health care, too. People are threatening politicians. People are booing them when they're talking about the, the passing of, of loved ones from illness. I mean, there is not a lot of civility out there right now. Um, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. Uh, we're going to be joined by David Harsanyi in just a minute. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? The Buck is back. Everybody, we've got David Harsanyi on the line, senior editor at The Federalist. His latest piece is You Want Checks and Balances? Stop Ignoring the Constitution When You're in Power. Let's talk about it. David, what's up? Lots up, Buck. Lots going on. Yeah, that, that's for sure. Uh, let's get into this. You know, the, the left holds two ideas simultaneously that are self-contradictory. This is not really all that much of a surprise, but it is fun to point it out. Uh, as you write in your piece, they think that Donald Trump is, quote, both a clueless idiot, unable to spell or read or earn a single cent on his own merit, and a nefarious mastermind capable of bamboozling the entire nation so he can hand over the White House to Russia, end quote. Um, yeah, that would be it would be tough to be both of those things. Right. But we're we're supposed to believe that uh, Donald Trump is an idiot and that he, you know, and they just mock him for basically everything he does. And then they tell us, well, he's tricked us all and he's handing the nation over to Putin and, you know, he's getting away with murder. Uh, you know, I, I imagine that the truth lies somewhere within these two two places. And yesterday you saw 
just the frenzy and hysteria over the firing of Comey, which, you know, one story after the next telling us um, essentially making it out to be Watergate. And today I think we learned that most of the stories weren't even true. And this has been happening over and over again. And I think that, it, you know, and I'm not a big fan of Trump, but this sort of thing actually helps the guy because no one trusts the media at all anymore. And isn't that a rational response to what's been going on? Uh, you've got people who are senior veteran reporters, overpaid, held up as as uh, the, the, the luminaries of the, the free press, and they'll report something with anonymous sourcing that doesn't have to be anonymous sourcing to protect the source. They just don't want to give us the source, right? And then it'll turn out, you know, the, the, the president is in a bad mood, doesn't have to be anonymously sourced. I know it can be, depending on if it's somebody who could get fired. But, you know, there are a lot of things that I think they just hold back now because they've gotten in the habit of doing it. But then we find out later that it, it is not true. And if you report something that has no or that is completely inaccurate, isn't that fake? Or at least, it's at least false, as I say. It's false news. Well, a few things. I mean, you know, an anonymous source, at least when I was working at a newspaper, and obviously I was never at that level of reporting, there would have to be a very good reason to use it. And typically, it would be used to sort of strengthen a story that you've actually reported and and you needed it. Now, it's like, I don't, need, I don't even trust that all these people, I mean, it's impossible that all these reporters have senior uh, White House people leaking stuff to them that, that sounds exactly like what they want to hear all the time. I just, I don't buy it anymore. And yesterday, there were like three, three stories that turned out not to be true I, that I can think of off the top of my head. You know, one was that um, uh, the deputy AG was on the verge of quitting. He yep. was asked that today. He said no. Yeah, and you've probably have gone through all this yeah. stuff, but... Um, that's a big problem because we don't know what to believe. And listen, I think I don't buy Trump's explanation for why he fired Comey. I think he wanted to get rid of him, and he's allowed to do that. I don't understand how we can frame this as a constitutional crisis when the guy's allowed to fire. Yeah, what now. is what is the constitutional crisis? We had yesterday the nation was was treated to a series of. Uh, alleged legal experts, uh, what was it, Tubin over at CNN, and, and there were others as well, John Meacham, who's, I, I'm, I'm in the middle of this guy's Andrew Jackson biography, among other books, and I'm like, I don't even know if I want to read this anymore. This guy's talking about charges that could lead to treason. That was what he said yesterday. As, uh-huh. I, as I pointed out, one, there are no charges, and two, any investigation could lead to charges of anything, right? You could be <laughs> you could be investigating somebody for embezzlement and find out that they're selling Stinger, uh, Stinger missiles. You know, it's crazy. The acting FBI director, Andrew McCabe, sat in front of a Senate, uh, you know, a committee today, and he said that there has been no obstruction of the investigation. I mean, does that mean anything to anyone? I mean, it's, you know, there is no, there is that. First of all, we don't even know if Trump is being investigated. That was also an anonymous source story. And then we hear that, you know, the investigation goes on. He also said he didn't need resources, that he had plenty of people investigating it. So... So the frenzy was driven by these stories that are not true. So, you know, and it's just this anger and frustration because everyone believes that Trump did all these things. And so they just want someone to say it, but no one will say it because it's probably not true. And all they're doing now is leading us. You know, everything is tied to Russia. Everything bends towards its will. So we can't talk about anything else in this country. And, and it's just I think it's a disaster for us. 
Tell me about the checks and balances aspect of your piece. Uh, what, what do you, you know, your, your title here, and I'm speaking to David Harsani, he's a senior editor at The Federalist, is you want checks and balances, stop ignoring the Constitution when you're in power. How so, David? Well, listen, whenever I bring up that Donald Trump isn't the first uh, person with, you know, some authoritarian impulses, and I bring up that Obama had, had uh, sort of eroded, you know, or abused his executive power, everyone accuses me of, you know, bringing up, you know, whataboutism, bringing up what happened in the past. Well, these things just don't happen uh, overnight. It's a continuum. You have presidents sort of breaking down walls, and then other presidents take advantage of that as well, and becomes sort of a partisan issue where Democrats defended everything Obama did because they liked the outcome, you know, they were, it was morally pleasing to them. The press let him get away with it. Um, so I'm not excusing things that Trump does, even though he hasn't done very much at all really yet. Um, but I do like to note that if you really care about checks and balances, if you care about separations of power, if you care separation of power, and if you care about the Constitution, you would be wise to uh, sort of cherish and look after those things when you're in power, not just when it is politically convenient for you. That's basically the thesis. I have to say, I was I was annoyed that there were some stories this week that got chewed up entirely and and left aside because of all the focus on uh, on what's going on with with Comey and the firing. Like Aetna, huge insurer, just saying that by 2018 we're, we're out. We're we're pulling out of these exchanges. We're we're donezo. <laughs> Obamacare's working. Um, yeah, it's a big problem, you know, and. Uh, the whole thing annoys me simply because the Republicans are obviously, you know, not taking advantage of this in a political way. And it sounds terrible to say that you're taking advantage of something bad that's happening, but they could bring something far better to, to Americans by fixing Obamacare as they had promised. But instead, they don't do that. And uh, Obamacare, you know, is falling apart. There, another state, I think, I think it was, I might be wrong about this, but I think it was Idaho or Iowa won't have, may not have a single provider for Obamacare in the exchanges. Other states like Arizona, I think, have one or are down to zero. Um, and yet, when Republicans come forward with a, with a plan, Democrats treat it as if like they're taking away something. Well, Obamacare is already taking insurance away from these people. They're not going to have insurance. So, you know, not being able to take advantage of this now and give some people something better is just, it's, it's mind-boggling. David Harsani, senior editor at The Federalist. Uh, great to have you stop by the Freedom Hunt, sir. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Team, uh, 844-900-2825. Quick break, and we'll be right back. Just when you thought that airline travel will be hard to make it more annoying than it currently is, here we have the possibility... That it's going to get a little worse, everybody. I know. I come bearing bad news on this one. We saw uh, that guy, uh, Dr. Dow, I believe, who got uh, pulled out of his seat and with United. And then, of course, a, a huge backlash against United as a result of that. We've all seen it. We've talked about it. I think uh, Dr. Dr. Dow is probably driving around in a, in a gold-plated Lamborghini now. But nonetheless... Um, United learned a lesson, I suppose, that day. So the CEO certainly did in a crisis, a crisis PR and what not to do. And then there was a, I think it was also United, there was a giant rabbit. Yeah, an actual, a giant rabbit, um, I believe, 
that was in storage and it expired. It it passed away. It passed away in, in storage. This this like valuable, very large rabbit. And then, although is that I don't think no, that was a real thing. And then there also was a woman who was sitting and said she had to get up. And we we've, we've all been there when we've been sitting too long, and we would like to go use the the lavatory. And uh, they gave her, you know, she, she she wasn't allowed to go to the bathroom, so they handed her a cup. Okay, so we know that story as well. Um, airlines are having a rough time of it lately, which I would like to think would mean that they would get a little better at some stuff. Uh, and as I, I think I mentioned this a little while back, the whole rule about how you can't have any electronic device at all, including a Kindle out during takeoff, you know, which is handheld and doesn't even necessarily transmit anything. Um, that was just a rule because they have there are there are rules that the airlines have that are just dumb that are not sensible rules, uh, and they don't open them up to any discretion because just like in a totalitarian society, the minute you start to be reasonable, people people have an expectation of reasonableness from you, and they want more reasonableness. They they want to negotiate. They want you to use discretion. They want to be the exception. And that, um, uh, that is not what the airlines want. The airlines want to be in a position where they can do, well, exactly what they want to do, which is just tell you the rule is the rule. Okay, so you got United had the problem with the guy dragged out of seat and the, the dead bunny and then the, the woman in the cup and all these big airline stories recently. And there also was a fight, and this is pretty standard stuff, but people have been... Airline rage or plane rage. I don't know if they have a, I guess they call it air rage maybe or something. Whatever it is. That was a video went viral recently. Here's the latest. I know, it's, it's quite a lead-in to tell you about this one. Wall Street Journal, U.S. weighs expanding laptop ban to flights between the U.S. and Europe. That means that airline, this could happen where airlines decide that the uh, carriers that a lot of carriers from European airlines that fly transatlantic routes, you may not be able to have your laptop there anymore. This is very distressing. Uh, I, I'm sure it's clearly a, a security measure based on the fear that somebody would be able to create a an explosive device out of out of your laptop. But I also, We've all gotten used to the take your laptop out and also the liquids and all this stuff. This is now uh, we've we've conceded that this is just the way it's going to be now. And so you get the laptop out. It is scanned separately and uh, the laptop goes to the machine. You figure it's all OK. Not enough anymore. They may tell you no more laptops in the uh, in the cabin with you. And that, that would apply to iPads possibly as well. according to a survey here cited in the journal of worldwide airline passengers bring a tablet aboard and 70% of them use them in flight. 38% of passengers bring laptops on board and 42% use them. So everybody, this would mean you wouldn't be able to do work anymore on the flight. This will be very annoying. And I know that it's, I'm sure it's based in some security rationale, but there's a part of me. I'm going to be completely honest with you. There's a part of me that just thinks in the conspiratorial recesses of my brain. It's almost like they're trying to to punish people for all of the bad press airlines have gotten. I know that's not real and that's not what's really happening here, but it feels like, well, look at this timing. All of a sudden now they're taking away they're taking away our laptops after years of 
uh, being able to download whatever you want off of iTunes and and uh, and watch it. So that's uh, something else that'll be going on at the airports. As I've said, I think that airline travel is very is very useful useful from a political perspective because it's the closest thing that most Americans will ever will ever come to uh, that resembles a totalitarian state. You, your, your body is, you're not in control of your body. You have to do what even your physicality is under orders from the authorities. Uh, everything is uncomfortable. Everything is poorly made. It is very expensive. It's constantly stressful. Uh, there are, there's propaganda, you know, you know, we would like your attention, please. It's like, yeah, I can't figure out how to use the seat the seatbelt buckle, right? There's Orwellian-style propaganda. When you really work your way through the whole airline experience, it is kind of like a little crash course in a Big Brother 1984-style state. You just, just go online, everything. The, the, the blasting of propaganda. Uh, you're not allowed to question anything. They can tell you what to do with regard to everything. Um, they can hold. They can detain you without cause. Oh yeah, that's right. Tarmac delay. That's being detained without cause. How long can they keep you? I don't know. Maybe eight hours. You know. You read some of the stories, and people have suffered mightily as a result of that. Um, and you, I'm trying to think of other other uh, comparisons you can draw here with a totalitarian state. But oh yeah, I mean you're subject to physical discomfort. I wouldn't say torture, but those seats are pretty terrible. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways that, um, you are, oh, and also the whole process too, the security process and the security theater that we go through, you know, TSA pulls aside, you know, grandma in a wheelchair and is is going over that wheelchair, uh, like they're, they're worried that it's going to turn into a rocket ship or something on board. I mean, it's just all of the stuff that you add together makes airline travel, uh, annoying, um, and like I said, it, it is a little visit that we all take into a totalitarian state. And now you'll be less able to escape from that totalitarianism with uh, your laptop or your, your tablet and being able to uh, download something. Now, people, people are going to say, well, you know, Pac, don't you like books? And you know, people will read more now. That's true. I always bring a book on the plane. Of course. I bring a book and a Kindle. That's right. Uh, but... You know, the problem with books on a plane is that people get noisy. You want to drown out the sound. And there's something kind of nice and particularly escapist about being, whatever, you know, 35,000 feet up or whatever it is, and being able to watch Braveheart for the 300th time or something like that. So, uh, oh, by the way, on the getting airlines to get better thing, all the research I've been reading in recent weeks I'm planning some travel and in the, in the, well, some flights at least in the fall. All, everything that I see suggests that because people have determined, the marketplace has determined that most flyers value much more uh, a cheap flight than a comfortable and uh, well-organized and timely flight. The most important factor for people looking to fly is the price tag on the flight. And because of that, um, it is unlikely that airlines are going to change policies like over overselling and and uh, n- now I wonder who we could go to to see if we could contest this new policy about laptops because I, I would be somebody who'd want to contest this. Uh, this reminds me of you know you've got the no liquids rule, you got the no laptops rule coming up here now, all this different stuff, and it's just 
making air travel even more annoying than it already is. And it is pretty darn annoying. Oh, I forgot about the 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 big uh, fight that was videotaped the only week from Spirit Airlines, right? That was another. So there's been a lot of bad press for airlines recently. And now here we are with the, uh, the battle of, uh, well, the looming fight over whether they're going to ban laptops in the cabin. I have to say I'm... Uh, Hoping that they don't do this, but I think they probably will. I think so much of this uh, security stuff that they do on the on the airlines is overly uh, is too cautious, and also it's a little politically motivated. You know, now we can get into the discussion about uh, you know would it be better to maybe look for the look for the terrorist or the hijacker? You know, should we be focused on that aspect of security? No, no, no. Let's just have everybody not able to bring any stuff on board and have to sit there strapped into their seat like they're on a roller coaster and not able to get up and not able to move and uh, forget about a totalitarian state. It's like hellish sometimes on there. Anyway, I know. I hope none of you have any flights tomorrow. Some of you probably do, and I'm not getting you excited for it. I'm sure it'll be great. You know, you can download like Finding Nemo 2 or something. At least for now, you can still do that. Eventually, you won't be able to. All right, we got to talk about some uh, serious stuff coming up here in a few minutes right after the break. Um, opioid epidemic, an update on that. We've got more. Stay with me. Buck Sexton with America Now. We are gold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, welcome back, everybody. We've got Dr. Bertha Madras on the line. She's a professor of psychobiology in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. She's former deputy director for demand reduction in the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy. Her research focuses on the relevance of dopamine signaling to addiction biology, and she holds 19 patents. Dr. Madras, thank you so much. You're very welcome. I'm delighted to be here. Please tell us a bit about this uh, news report um, about the drug called Gray Death and what this means as part of the opioid epidemic that's ongoing. Well, the opioid epidemic has really become a moving target because at first, most of the deaths and most of the problems were prescription drugs. Now they're moved into fentanyl and heroin, and we have uh, combinations of opioids, fentanyl and uh, uh, higher, more potent types of fentanyls combined with heroin, combined with another synthetic opioid. And these, the problem with these drugs is that they're so potent that it's, it's hard to reverse it with a drug like naloxone, which is a lifesaver. And we're seeing more and more people make more and more concoctions like this. And it is one of the most dangerous trends we've ever had in our country. This is so uh, dangerous as a substance that even touching it with gloves can be a problem? Yes, yes. How does that work? What's, what's the, what's the uh, chemical reaction that goes on there? Well, it's because it is so potent. It can simply get into your skin. It can get into your nose, into your eyes, hit the same part of the brain that kills people with morphine or heroin, and just uh, stop you from breathing. 
And this. And so you. Go ahead. Go ahead, doctor. Uh, that's the problem with it. It's really, um, the, you know, the, the stronger the drug is, the more dangerous it is because there there's certain drugs like LSD, for example, that are potent at, at the amount that is the weight of your fingerprint. And I've actually done the experiment where you put a fingerprint on a very sensitive uh, scale and that amount, just how much your fingerprint weighs, that is the amount that, that can have a, a tremendous effect on your brain. Fox News was reporting earlier this week on the drug called Gray Death. It's being looked at in overdose cases in Georgia, Alabama, and Ohio. Uh, Doc, they're saying that it's comprised of, uh, of heroin, fentanyl, and the elephant tranquilizer carfentanil and a synthetic opioid called U4 U47700 uh yeah. fentanyl already is many times more potent than heroin or morphine and so what what is the the purpose of making these drugs even more potent it seems like they're already so dangerous do people who are engaged in the illegal activity of modifying these just not know they're making something that's already incredibly risky insanely risky Oh, they know very well they're making something very risky. The problem is if you own a, a poppy field somewhere in the western edges of Mexico, it's very easy to spot it from an airplane. It's very easy to spray it. It's very easy to land a helicopter and arrest the people who are making it. When you make fentanyl or carfentanyl or U4470 or S77 or any of these others, you can make them in a lab, sight unseen. Nobody knows where you are. Nobody knows where your production is. And it is so powerful that you can cut it multiple times and make a very high profit on it. So these folks are gambling on the fact that they are in a much safer place doing it in a lab than, than growing it in, in a field. We're talking to Dr. Bertha Madras, a professor of psychobiology uh, in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. We're discussing the opioid epidemic and a new, even more dangerous addition to the lineup of drugs that are uh, ravaging streets across the country. Opioid deaths in 2015 surpassed 30,000. Doctor, we know this is a crisis. We've had you on the show before to talk about it. Uh, what are the steps now that the Trump administration should be uh, considering and acting on to deal with what, what is truly an, an epidemic. I mean, the, the death toll from this drug, from these drugs, this class of drugs, seems to only be getting higher. It's, it's only getting higher. And what's happening is that originally the death tolls were, the lion's share were um, prescription opioids. What's happened now is last year, the death toll from prescription opioids increased only by 2%. The death toll from heroin about 22%. And the death toll from fentanyl-type drugs increased by 72%. So basically, about 80% of the people who are currently using heroin or fentanyl were people who started with opioid prescriptions. And what's happened is with, uh, you know, with, increased controls on on um, on prescribing these drugs, people are moving into these deadlier deadlier combinations, much less safe 
and much less safe because they have no idea what they're getting when they buy them on the street. So what do we do about it? The most important thing from my perspective is first to save lives, and that is to make sure that there is a naloxone, the antidote, available in as many places as possible throughout the country where there's a high number of people who are using because saving lives is paramount. Once a person's life is saved, you have an opportunity to help them and treat them. The second thing we have to do is, uh, is be able to offer as many treatment slots as possible for those willing to go. And we have to be able to provide medications-assisted treatment, which works. The third issue is we have to figure out how to identify people who have a, a, an opioid addiction because so many are going unidentified. They don't come out um, and, and present themselves in, in, in a frequency that, that is going to stop the epidemic. So we have to figure out a way how to get healthcare workers, how to get hospitals, how to get everyone in the community that has an opportunity to, um, to help these people, convince them that this is a life-saving matter. It's life or death to get into treatment and to move away from this class of drugs, which is so deadly. How quickly does one have to usually get the antidote uh, for it to be effective in preventing an overdose with, with fentanyl-class drugs? Yeah, with with the conventional drugs, I call them like a prescription opioids. Um, you, you know, you have a, a, a good window of time. With fentanyl, you have very little time. It has to be within minutes in some cases if the dose is high because there are um, many reports of EMTs and other emergency responders um, showing that the person died as the needle went in because wow. they, it was so powerful that there was no chance even of intervening at that point. So having fentanyl right there on the spot is critical. Dr. Bertha Madras, professor of psychobiology in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Uh, Dr. Madras, really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. You're very welcome. I hope this is helpful. Very much so. Thank you. Team, we are going to hit a break here in a second. By the way, if you're wondering, because I was curious about this myself, China, the different versions of or different names for fentanyl include uh, China Girl, China White, Dance Fever, Friend, Goodfella, Jackpot, Murder 8, TNT, and Tango and Cash. Uh, this is a, a true epidemic, and, and unfortunately, it is uh, often in places in the country that don't get very much media attention. Uh, these are in uh, this this is a, a drug that is affecting rural areas uh, heavily as well as uh, urban areas, and there's nothing right now that makes anyone think that this is going to become less of a, a crisis in the near future. So th- this is um, this is a real fight that we have ahead as a country, and we should be focused on it. But anyway, I wanted to uh, bring you up to speed again on what's going on in the fight against opioids in this country. Um, 844-900-2825. Team, we'll be back in just a few. 
story that's not getting much attention this week, another issue that's not getting much attention because we're all supposed to be uh, so concerned about the Kremlin's massive psyop to throw the U.S. election, right? Um, psychological operation with Vladimir Putin pulling all the strings. I just, uh, it's never going to get old for the Democrats, unfortunately. This is just going to be the, the story that never goes away. But let's talk immigration for a second, my friends. The Trump administration, this on Fox News, has concluded a six-week nationwide sweep of suspected gang members with 1,378 arrests, the largest such gang sweep conducted by the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement Homeland Security Investigations to date. Uh, Of the uh, 1,378 arrested, 933 were U.S. citizens, and uh, over 1,000 were confirmed as gang members or affiliates, 100 And four of those arrested were affiliated with MS-13. Eight of those crossed the border as unaccompanied minors. Now, I know that that's only eight out of a larger, much larger number of, well, of course, unaccompanied minors, but also a much uh, larger number of individuals that were caught up in this operation Uh, But for a while, some of us have been saying, you know, that whole unaccompanied minor thing at the border that everyone's been talking about and the surge of particularly Central American miners who were trying to cross the well, they would cross the border. And because of existing policy at the time, they could turn themselves into Border Patrol and say, I'm a minor. And then they were brought into the country and and they could claim asylum here. Then They can claim asylum as. Uh, and and become permanent residents and stay with family members, right? So, uh, but some of us have been saying, I- I'm willing to bet there are a lot of uh, 20-year-olds pretending to be 16-year-olds who just kind of found themselves by the border and, you know, okay, here I am. Um, and th- that clearly has happened in some cases here, as well as gang members, right? We, we know maybe they weren't in a gang at the time, but they joined a gang when they uh, when they got here within relatively short order, it would seem. Um, But so there's serious enforcement operations underway. Um, Some of the stuff I've read about MS-13, and and MS-13 is in the D.C. area, and I think it's in Virginia that there's a pretty prominent MS, there's prominent MS-13 activity. Uh, Maryland, I believe, has prominent uh, MS-13 violence and and all all of the bad stuff that comes with... uh, organized cartel-like crime. So enforcement actions are important, and also perception matters when it comes to immigration. And and this is where the Trump administration has a clear advantage. If, If you believe in law and order and you care about the enforcement of immigration laws, the Trump administration has a substantial advantage over its predecessor, the Obama administration, in the uh, perception of a willingness to enforce the law that then turns into a change in behavior with those who are willing to violate our immigration laws. Let me give you some of the specifics uh, here. This is also on Fox. Trump's tough immigration rhetoric slows illegal border crossings. Quote, we are at a trickle. And in this piece, they talk about how Uh, Since January, there's been a significant decrease 
in traffic to the point where they're averaging about 150, 150 alien apprehensions a day, uh, which is down from as many as 1,000 a day in that sector, uh, uh, the Rio Grande Border Patrol sector. This is according to the deputy chief there. Um, and he says a big part of the decrease, I think, has to do with a lot of the discussion about the buildup of infrastructure on the southwest border, more agents along the border, and some of the message making its way down to those host countries. Now, that that all makes sense, doesn't it? When people believe that there's a lower likelihood because of what's being said at the very top, because of what President Trump is saying, uh, both on the campaign trail and now that he is the president, it it changes the view of those who would think about coming here illegally because it would seem much less likely they'll be able to stay. Well, if it's much less likely you'd be able to stay, then that will change the way that you view crossing the border illegally. It seems that that is already happening. And then you get into just the the cost of illegal cross the the monetary cost of illegal crossings. Uh, and this is this is the, I thought one of the most interesting parts of this entire piece um, that be, it used to be because of the Obama administration's willingness to not enforce immigration law or, and to allow for these very long uh, release periods where somebody would come to the country illegally, they'd be detained and they'd be let go inside the country. And then they're supposed to show up at a a very backlogged immigration court, maybe in a year or two. And if they don't show up, well, then what? You know, they're they're not exactly going to be spending a ton of resources to try to track this individual down. There's too many people who are illegal, who are illegals, who are in the same category. Um, but because you're less likely to be able to do that now, it also means that you are less likely to spend the thousands of dollars that coyotes, which is what people call the um, human smugglers that help people get across the border illegally, oftentimes tied in with cartel activity and, and have engaged in uh, terrible uh, stuff. I mean, violence, atrocities, rapes in, in the desert of those that they're supposed to be helping to cross the border. Um, but that's expensive to pay someone to do that. It's thousands of dollars. And y- you don't want to spend thousands of dollars if it means that Border Patrol is going to is likely to catch you and hold you now, detain you until you are sent back to your country of origin. So I I know that there has been, and and it's understandable, there has been some uh, frustration over the, and maybe I'm just speaking about myself here, over the inability to get a a wall, new wall sections start at the southern border, new barrier uh, parts built at the southern border, but just the willingness to enforce the law is having a change. Just the willingness to speak differently about existing immigration laws and to do so in a way that people believe the words, right? Because Democrats and Republicans, there's been bipartisan talk about securing the border for decades. And if you even went back about 10 or 15 years, you'd have a lot of Democrats who would speak about border security. It was a talking point that worked for them. It was a talking point that they were comfortable deploying because they thought that that's where the much of the Democrat base was. That has changed now where you have the Democrat Party is, is a day, is an amnesty and quasi open borders party. Um, 
that's their that, that's their current status. They have moved away from even pretending uh, to care about securing the southern border in, in any meaningful way. Um, and by the way, there's also a, a piece out this week about the various states that are considering also passing sanctuary city laws. And what happened under the Obama administration was you had, um, for example, in Arizona, the law that passed that said that they were going to be doing some assistance to federal law enforcement for immigration purposes. And the Obama administration said, no, don't do that. Um, we, we've got this, which, of course, just meant, no, don't do that. We don't want to enforce it and we don't want you to help us enforce it. Uh, immigration law. But now when states say it, states have police powers. And if states decide that within that state, there will be a much more restrictive approach to illegal immigration and a much more enforcement oriented approach, it changes the calculation once again. So we are seeing not yet the fulfillment of all of Trump's promises on immigration, but we are seeing positive movement in the direction of a more secure border, less illegal inflow, and a willingness to just finally do what the what the law says, which is a, a pretty dramatic departure from what was going on under the Obama administration. We've got more team. Stay with me. Betsy DeVos, the education secretary, uh, tried to give a commencement speech at Bethune-Cookman University, which is a historically black college in Daytona Beach, Florida. Uh, This is how it started. Mr. Jackson, Board of Trustees, thank you so very, very much for this great honor and privilege. I am honored to become a Wildcat. And it's a real honor and privilege to be with you as we celebrate the Bethune-Cookman University class of 2017. They're booing. Uh, You can't see the video. I was just playing the audio for you there. But students are booing and have their backs. They stand up and turn their backs on their commencement speaker, who happens to be the secretary of education so uh this is one of these moments where i i just have to stop and think and think about what is going through the minds of the students now this is of course where if i were on cnn i can play this game then they they would have buck sexton there talking about how betsy devos was booed which i find childish and disrespectful and uh, preposterous on on many levels, right? This is your commencement speaker. She hasn't even said anything yet. You're booing her. Um, but beyond that, this is where they'd bring on somebody from CNN or some other liberal. Be like, well, you know, this is this. It's the right of these students for free speech. Just yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that the government should go in there and arrest people or find people or that they're not allowed to boo. But it's rude to boo a commencement speaker who hasn't even said anything yet. They're booing her from go. They're booing her from the start of this whole thing. And she's at Bethune-Cookman University trying to uh, be part of a a nice day for everybody there, um, trying to be part of a a celebration. And, you know, if I were there, I'd want to be as uh, open and friendly and, and welcoming and, you know, 
cool about everything as I possibly could as well. It's a, it's commencement day, right? It's it's graduation. People are supposed to be they're supposed to feel uh, good about what they've done, their accomplishments, and these you know, these students at Bethune Cookman sh- should have their day. But why why have this mark on the day? Why do this? Why make a scene? about Betsy DeVos. Now, I can understand if some figure in the Trump administration that was a little more, well, I can understand if like Donald Trump was speaking there that they would act, that they would act out any students would act out at any university across the country, I think, because they just couldn't help themselves to take the opportunity to stand up against the big evil fascist that they've been told Donald Trump is right, I, I still think that would be disrespectful and childish. Whether it's at uh, whether it's at Harvard, Stanford, Ohio State, or Bethune Cookman, doesn't matter. I think you need to be respectful to speakers. This is also why, uh, as an aside, I, I don't. People ask me this sometimes: Why don't you have on liberals on your show to argue with? And I always say I, I'm open to it. I, I invite people to come on. But I'm not going to invite somebody on to be a punching bag. And I'm also not going to invite somebody on who's going to get going to be rude and force me to raise my voice and cut them off because I don't think that's good radio. Um, And also, I I am a host. And when someone comes into the Freedom Hut, as I call it, when someone comes on my show, whether they're uh, a listener who just calls in or an invited guest, they are to be treated with respect. I treat every caller with respect because I think that's the way that I should act, and I also expect that from those who call in as well as, as from my guests. Um, but they're an invited guest, right? Anyone who calls into my show is an invited guest. Anyone who comes in is a, anyone who I've scheduled, of course, is an invited guest. And the same is true of a commencement speaker. Right? Whether you love the commencement speaker or not, to, to be openly disrespectful to the commencement speaker especially with without even waiting. She's like, you know, hi, everybody. I just want to say thank you. And the boo and turning around and, uh, you know, they're really going after her. And, you know, look, she later on said that, quote, one of the hallmarks of higher education and of democracy is the ability to converse with and learn from those with whom we disagree. I have respect for all those who attended the commencement, including those who demonstrated their disagreement with me. So a very classy response from Betsy DeVos, who is a billionaire who just wants to help kids, particularly low-income and minority children, get a better education, get access to a better education. She's not the enemy. This is why it, it, this is why this is such an important story, because as you see, before I mentioned Trump or, you know, if you're brought in some other figures from the Trump administration, I understand there's intense political disagreement right now. I still think you're respectful to a commencement speaker, but at least you, you can kind of see how maybe some students would. Well, you understand how they how students act at all these different campuses. Right. So but this is the education secretary. And which is a great commencement speaker, by the way, I I think my commencement speaker was Ambassador Dennis Ross, whom I had actually worked for for a summer. And when I went up to him, did not remember me, (laughs) which was that was good times. Uh, I mean, I think he maybe kind of figured out. But I was like, yeah, I I was your research intern for a summer. Good to see, you know, and he's just like had no, you know, I got nothing from the ambassador, nothing. Uh, And then we had. A college president whose name was Marx, Tony Marx, 
who gave a speech and my parents, if they were, uh, you know, my parents listened to the show, which is also why I have to be so well, be- well behaved whenever anyone calls in and ma'am and sir and, you know, no, no, no bad language. Um, Professor Marx, or, or yeah, President Marx, actually, <laughs> President Marx, think about that. Not Carl, but President Marx gave a speech about how our university or our college, Amherst College, wasn't uh, financially diverse enough. My class was 43% minority, by the way, okay? and But but it wasn't financially diverse enough. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, well, you know, my parents just, you know, opened up a vein to send me here for four years, and, and we're getting lectured about how we're not doing, you know, we're not doing enough to make it, like, we're on the way out. We're trying to get jobs and go into the world. We have to get a lecture about how we fail society because this college that's $55,000 a year, by the way, is not financially diverse enough. A lot of the students go for free. I was not one of them. Okay. Anyway, uh, back to Betsy DeVos. Why is the education secretary uh, greeted with booze by students who, as I said, if I were there, I'd be clapping for them. And if they'd let me, you know, high fives and hugs and congrats. Commencement is a day of, of joy and everybody should be in a good mood. Why are they booing and turning their backs to the education secretary? And it's just because of the continued indoctrination that even someone, whether you think Betsy DeVos and school vouchers, which is what this really comes down to, the education secretary under Donald Trump right now is a big proponent of vouchers. If you think that's the wrong policy, okay, I get it. I disagree. I think it's actually a a right policy. And if it was instituted better with other uh, school choice options, it could be great. Um, But even if you think it's the wrong policy, at least give the woman the benefit of the doubt for trying to help people. She's she's not trying to oppress people. You know, I know they can apply intersectionality to all this, which is really just a, 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 a fancy way of saying society is just one series of interlocking oppressions and uh, bigotries. That's all that's all society. That's all American society is, is just a nexus of bigotry, oppression and subservience. And uh, that's intersectionality where class, race and gender all clash. Um, but. DeVos is trying to make the world a better place, especially for underprivileged youth. And I just would think, can they give her the benefit of the doubt? I mean, and look, they don't have to. I get it, right? Free speech. But it just shows you how deep the indoctrination goes, that on a day of celebration, when Betsy DeVos shows up at a historically black college uh, at Bethune-Cookman in good faith, She's getting booed. Why is she getting booed? Not because she's a bad person, not because she's done anything wrong, because she supports a policy that students at this college and at colleges across the country have been led to believe undermines the public school system. And why is that such a big deal? We all know the public school system fails all over the place in tons of cases, but the public school system is, especially with its public sector unions, a centerpiece of Democrat power. So there has to be anytime the Democrats power is at risk, there has to be brainwashing. There has to be, you know, shouting down of the opposition. And that's how you get poor Betsy DeVos just showing up, trying to give a nice little speech and getting booed and heckled and treated so poorly. I had a break here. I'll be right back. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? The Buck is back. Welcome back, team. A little follow-up to uh, the campus craziness story that we've been following here on the show uh, for quite a while. And uh, it's about Charles Murray. You'll recall Charles Murray 
is an academic, uh, not a right-wing bomb thrower, not somebody who uh, mixes it up and likes to enrage students with what could be considered uh, more, more aggressive commentary. No, he's an academic. He's attached to the American Enterprise Institute, but he's written on some subject matter that gets uh, leftists very upset. He's written on IQ, which is is an area of scientific inquiry that is more or less off limits now, I should note, because of the politics around it. Uh, and he's also written re- more recently about the uh, social stratification in this country in a book called Coming Apart. Well, Well, he went to Middlebury campus a while ago, and he came up against that leftist insanity that's been seen so many times before uh, where they believe his speech is violence or it's tantamount to violence. It's epistemic violence, uh, that his ideas are so dangerous and evil and scary that students believe that they have a right to not just shout him down or stand in protest during the speech or, or or stand outside with placards, but to physically stop the speech, to shut down a live stream, to pull fire alarms. Uh, similar tactics that have been seen uh, elsewhere on campuses when there's a conservative speaker who is trying to be heard. Uh, and what made Middlebury particularly bad of these cases, and remember, this is a, a pretty small, otherwise sleepy school in Vermont, uh, it's in the same uh, sports league that my alma mater, Amherst College, is in. And you wouldn't think that this is the kind of environment where you might come across what was a, a small-scale riot because of a speaker coming to this bucolic, uh, otherwise picturesque little New England uh, campus. And they had uh, dozens of people that surrounded Mer- Charles Murray and also a professor when he tried to exit the building where the speech was supposed to happen, they injured the professor. Uh, there was pushing. There was an assault. They also banged on the car windows, wouldn't let them drive away, uh, acted like these students acted like a bunch of little savages, a, a bunch of anti-speech, book-burning barbarians. And one of the things about this that got attention from me and from others is there were like no consequences for this. It's as though nobody really cared that this college had abandoned one of its core precepts of, well, what should be a a, a core and fundamental uh, precept on a college campus, which is free and open inquiry, the exchange of ideas, learning. That's what you're supposed to do on campus. And if you can't hear perspectives that are outside of what you're comfortable with, how can you really learn? How can you even consider yourself to be educated on a topic. Uh, I think this also, and this is a bit of an aside, and I'll get back to the Middlebury Middlebury Melee update here. Um, I, I think that part of why you see such babyishness, uh, this babyish attitude from progressives, where they, where they truly act out, uh, is because in many cases, they go from uh, public schools or, or private schools, doesn't matter, Uh, But they go from a school environment in primary school up through high school where they're just uh, always having the progressive left ideology infused in their day to day. Uh, They are supported uh, 
in their beliefs with this. There's no real diversity of thought. They go into college where it is just hardened, where, where it ossifies, where all of a sudden uh, not only is it something that comes across in the curriculum, but it's in their social lives, it's in their dorms, it's everywhere. You have this progressive orthodoxy that you have to accept and become a part of or else you not only run the risk of bad grades from teachers and even discipline from deans if you do certain things at college conservatives, for example, have done in the past, uh, you know, if they try an affirmative action bake sale, these are some of the tactics that have gotten schools to shut down speech um, or, or take measures against those who w- want to engage in free speech. But I think the progressive lefties, they're so not used to engaging with ideas. They're so used to their ideas being coddled and supported and, oh, you're so smart and everything you think is great, that there's a real cognitive dissonance for them. I mean, there's a real, there's an abrupt recognition of a reality outside of what has been groomed and prepared and laid out for them over many, many years. So it's shocking to them. It really unsettles them. This is by no means an excuse for it, but it's just I think that's part of the mentality. And this is also true in newsrooms I've been in. I'm not going to name names, but uh, this is true of people I know who work in media on the left, which is most people. Uh, you go into certain websites and they're, you go into their newsroom, or you go into their main office. And if you started bandying about some conservative ideas, th- they would act like you were walking around there totally naked trying to start a fire you know though what, what is this guy doing well just ideas i thought we do ideas here but anyway back to back to middlebury um they are announcing they've announced some disciplinary actions um against uh it, it, it disciplined more than 30 students last month and now there are 60 students total who have received college discipline that might might leave a permanent mark in some cases on their record I feel like if there were any suspensions or expulsions, or clearly no expulsions, we'd hear about that. But even if there were suspensions, we would know. So this is just a letter in your file that I'm sure you don't have to show to prospective employers. Uh, This is window dressing. And that you don't see professors at Middlebury, at Berkeley, on college campuses that have nothing to do even with what's going on on some of these other campuses, that you don't see professors standing up for free speech and standing up for the exchange of ideas, tells you a lot about the culture in college life more broadly and, and in academia. So anyway, Middlebury's disciplining kids, but uh, it's nothing nothing particularly robust, I could promise you that. Please uh, check out BuckSexton.com. We're posting stories there every day and getting more and more involved in, in that site. It is the online home of the Freedom Hunt, my friends. Also, uh, pass along the word about the show. You can share the podcast, which is available on iTunes with anybody. Uh, just go to Buck Sexton with America Now on iTunes. And of course, click subscribe there if you have not already. And you can always listen on the iHeart app live or on demand. Buck Sexton with America Now, just type it in there. Um, Looking forward to a really exciting, fun Freestyle Friday show with you all tomorrow. Of course, action movie quotes will be in effect as well. So until then, my friends, no matter what comes your way, remember, shields high.